not known for its cheese. No, it's not? No. Oh. But they're right next to Green Bay, like the Green Bay Packers. They Canada is right next to a whole bunch of places in the United States. Yeah. It's right next to Maine. It's right next to Michigan. Somehow you choose the one state that has cheese. Well, and Because it's next to that, yeah. that state. Well, the point is the cheese is the most popular character on the show. Uh, it's more popular than the bologna and the salami combined. And Undead! Welcome back, everyone, to The Wages of Cinema. I am Jack. I'm Andrew. Yes, and I'm just making sure I'm not blowing out my speakers here. I think we're all good. We're we're full of goodness. Um, so, I mean, it feels like I it feels like an eon or something since I've last seen you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I just came in here uh, just a few minutes ago, and I, it was it felt it feels like a month since I've seen you last. I think, I, I think it's mainly because I've been watching a movie every day. Oh my god. Yeah. You, basically. I I'm not sure if I'm up to par with that kind of movie watching. You might be ahead of that, me. I don't think it was it wasn't that way for the solid two weeks, but for the last week I've been watching a movie every day. Hold on, I'm just fixing a wire here. I I just there okay. are times when I like I go on my library website and I completely over order Yeah, movies. no, I've I've i told you. <laughs> and then I end up with like four movies and I'm like, Oh man, these have gotta go to the library soon. And the only way that I can work this out is if I watch them all one at a time. Yeah. Well well for me, I um because I've just started up some new teaching work, I ended up at first thinking I wouldn't have time for many new movies, but then I caught up a little bit in the past several days. So, um, but, but, but the thing that I wanted to bring up though, cause when we last talked, we talked about, uh, the Oscar nominees right? and in part, we talked a little bit about how, um, the hashtag Oscar so white, the fact that, uh, for the second year in a row, there have been no, um, you uh, hold up a blank color. piece of paper and say, what's this a picture of Oscars in a snowstorm? Oh, <laughs> not bad. <laughs> Pretty good. I mean, I should I should also make the it's comment. It's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. Now I should mention, by the way, that in the past two years, uh, the best director has actually gone to Mexicans because Alfonso Cuarón got for Gravity, and then last year Inarritu got for Birdman. So it's not like there's no diversity at all. No. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's just no black people. <sighs> yeah. Or well, there are no, also no Hispanic people. Like I mentioned, uh, I think last week, Benicio del Toro uh, in Sicario was a, probably a nominatable person. Probably. But at any rate, but I um, mean, no one's no one's no one's nominating films based upon the race or yeah. performance of a well, certain pe- person. Well, right, right before we start recording, um, now I, I want to get to sort of the news that happened. Just uh, don't since throw we a trash can through a pizzeria window. I, well, Spike Lee's always ready to do that. He he's going around always, you know, repeat performance. That. Yeah, <laughs> do the right thing too. Oscar edition. He, he he's like, he he, he it's like he uh, when the Who did made uh, Who's Next, and for the rest of your career, it's almost expected that you always do Bob O'Reilly and uh, Who's Who's Next won't get fooled again. Uh, I remember at when Django Chain. Unchained came out. Spike Lee uh, put up like a like a Twitter. Uh, well, well, no, he said. Well, he basically said this does not honor you know slaves. So, that sl- you know, slavery was not a spaghetti western, but you know, I actually watched Django Unchained again, and you know what I found very interesting this time? Okay, I found very interesting the portrayal of different slaves in that in that movie. Huh. Yeah. I, there are two main black characters. One is Django, and one is Steven. Well, one is, St- is Steven, played by Samuel L. Jackson. Steven is actually pretty uh, a pretty risky performance for Samuel L. Jackson. Well, he well that's the the story that Samuel L. Jackson keeps telling in the press since uh, he did the movie was after he read the script, he realized that he was a little too old to play Django. So he said, "You want me to play the most despicable?" N-word, like, yeah. in history of cinema. All right, I'll get into it. What, what, what Oh, yeah, and, and he commits to it all the way. Oh, yeah. And no. that could have gone so wrong. But, he, it's yeah. act, but you know, he pulls it off perfectly. And well, there's... you completely understand him as a character. Even as despicable as he is, you can kind of almost see the history of that character in his face. The fact yeah. that he's and... been there. He's, he's an institutionalized 
figure. Right, and and he's not just an Uncle Tom. He is he, he has a great deal of depth. I mean, he he basically runs the the plantation. Yeah, he because is, like Calvin Candy is, isn't even there. For, if for Candy a lot of time. was not as smart as he was, he Stephen would be like the complete puppet master. The, the well, of that, well, of, yeah. that, of that of that plantation. Well, in real life uh, comparisons, I think that I don't think Tarantino is that overtly a political filmmaker. But there were some people who point out that you could almost kind of graft like George W. Bush onto Calvin Candy and. Dick Cheney onto uh, Stephen. I don't know. I don't know about that exactly, that, but that was something that people read into. That's a pretty weird metaphor that I wouldn't. Put I much could kind of see it a but, little bit. But here's the thing that's that I well, found interesting. Like, but there's Stephen and there's Django. But there in are between some, them, there are a few side slaves. You but, see the slaves when Django at the start is, you know, taken by Christoph Waltz. Right. But and, then there and, are, the, and the slave that's killed by the dogs but there are lots of other slaves too like in the cleopatra club there are two yes. slaves one is sheba and one's a bartender i don't mm -hmm. remember what his name but they they react to in very interesting ways to the brutality around them yeah i mean and you know there are the different uh mandingos you know and and you know there you feel like they're fighting to survive sheba is kind of along for the ride but she even she's kind of sickened by everything and there are lots of people and even like little how even the house slaves who oh, are yeah. in Candy's mansion who set up the table, they have strange reactions to Django. Whenever he says something out of place, they look at each other and then put their heads back down again. Yeah. And it's well, a really, actually kind of compelling portrayal of slavery altogether. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've read I read interviews with Tarantino at the time that, that the movie came out, and he, he had clearly done his homework. Like, oh, yeah. He, he talked about things with slaves that I didn't even know about. Like these, like if you hear really closely, Calvin Candy calls the, he, he tells the fighter, he tells the guy who wins that brutal Mandingo fight, you know, why don't you go and get one of well, a pony to lick your pole or something. Right. That was basically like, you would have slaves who would, you know, um, basically be like prostitutes. Yeah. Although I, d I don't think Mandingos actually existed. <laughs> no, probably not. He, he, <laughs> If but, but, that, but that's a reference. But that's a reference to to other elements of fiction that you know, uh, like, just like with like the Mandingo. Yeah, there, just like with see? the Hateful Eight, he's using actual history to springboard into his own no. universe. But the history is there. No, it's and, just, and yeah. you know, Tarantino's no historian. I'm not saying that. Uh, what I am saying though is that for all all the work on Django shows a very complex uh, picture of slavery in the American South. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and speaking of which, though, um, going back to the Oscars... Uh, oh, it's, right. It's no, 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 no. <laughs> it's, it's not that bad of a detour. Uh, and actually, it's funny, because I thought at the time, one of the snubs that year was Samuel Jackson in Best Supporting Actor. Like, he could have there, easily... There's always uh, somebody. There's always somebody. There are but, never enough nominations well, to go around. Well, but that comes to... Um, I mean, you asked before we got on, Mike, how are nominees... How, how do they make nominees in the in the Academy? How are they chosen? And uh, there was an... There... Yeah, it's a small cabal of Satanists who get together every year and say, <laughs> what movies do you like? <laughs> you and Satanists. It's like, you're... I think in your head, you're just picturing a scene out of, like, The Devil's Reign... With I everybody am, in robes, I am captivated by the idea of like of like that whole seventies and eighties notion <laughs> of like secret underground Satan networks. They because it's yeah. so it's so ludicrous. <laughs> everybody yeah. bought into it so deeply, oh, and yeah. I'm just like, I, it's it's kind of like a bad joke, but it's so awful that you just have to laugh at it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess you could probably say that like. Maybe it had to do a little bit with the. Uh, maybe it started with Charles Manson and like, then it spurred off into all these other crazy things. Well, I mean, uh, Rosemary's Baby. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Rosemary's Baby was part of it. Um, but what nominees. All right, thank you. Let's go from Satan because I'm sure a lot of people think the Oscars are Satan right now. Okay, so the Oscars right, are so, chosen by Satan. So right. and how do they get nominated? Okay. Well, the here I'm actually reading from an article to give a little bit of clarity. This is from Mental Floss. Uh, dot com. Uh, the voting process that determines which films and filmmakers become Oscar nominees is a long and complicated undertaking. I'm not going to read the whole thing. All right, skip ahead. Come on. Uh, it involves 6,000 voting members, hundreds of eligible films, 
actors, actresses, directors, cinematographers, editors, composers to even be eligible for a nomination, let alone win that gold statuette involves a strict procedure governed by st- uh, specific guidelines, all tied to the illustrious history of the Academy itself. Um, all now, right. So like there's 6,000 people who vote for who gets nominated. Yeah. 6,028 voting members. And you have to, you, you need to be in the business and there, it usually requires you have to be a member of the Academy. Well, in order to become a member of the Academy, it's like you have to have, Oh, it has actually the specifics here. Um, writers, producers, and directors must have at least two screen credits to their names, while actors must have credited roles in at least three films. And candidates in technical ca- branches like art directors, visual effects, must be active in their fields for a number of years. And it varies depending on that. And if wannabe Academy members don't have any necessar- necessary credentials, they can also find two or more current members to officially sponsor them. That's what we've got to do. We've got to find two Academy members. Wait, can it be the same two Academy members for both of us? Um, I don't know. Their membership is then either approved or denied by an Academy committee and by its board of governors. So are you thinking about becoming an Academy member? We should. <laughs> I'm serious. We should be Academy members. We're... We have a we we are critics. We need to kidnap an academy member. No, and... we don't need to kidnap anybody. <laughs> we just need to say we hey. need to kidnap them and find some satanists to uh, to back us up. All right, the satanists always help. All right, so there's... all right, so let me get to the formula for being getting nominated. Really, I'll I'll try to go this as quickly as I can. Um, so, all right, so you need uh, films need to meet certain criteria. So, A, a film needs to be over 40 minutes in length. It must be publicly screened either in, in – no, it must be screened in Los Angeles, and it must screen for a qualifying run of seven straight days. Um, actually, this is a bit of side trivia. Um, I, I, I think I remember reading in The Disaster Artist that Tommy Wiseau actually rented a theater so that the room could have a qualifying run. <laughs> In 2003. Tommy okay. Wiseau, the more I learn about you, the sadder I get. He's a unique specimen of, of human nature. Agreed. Okay. So, so you, have to, you have to premiere a movie. Yeah, you, you have, have to be to around do all for that. a certain amount of then, time. Then uh, a film cannot have its premiere outside of a theatrical run. Like screening a film for the first time on television or the internet renders the film ineligible. Um, and then ballots are sent out. Right, but here, but all right, you're, allowed, you're asked to list up to five names. And Academy instructs voters to, quote, follow their hearts. Because the voting process doesn't penalize for picking eccentric choices. Um, hence why, you know, I, I don't know if this is an eccentric choice, but for example, uh, when David Lynch got nominated for Mulholland Drive, and that was the only nomination for Best Director that that movie got that year. That was probably the directors realized, all right, we love this guy, Lynch. Let's give him a nomination. Yeah. Okay, um, so... Then People there's a lot of things five with films to nominate for the category. Yeah, and then depending upon who gets the most votes, that's who no- who's nominated. Yeah, because I, the numbers of people of vote of nominees change. It's yeah. not always like five or four or three. Um. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm reading from this article that um, it's called Price Waterhouse Coopers. They're I guess the people that count the ballots the and they crunch the numbers. Right. So they. They're looking for the magic number, the amount of votes in each category that automatically turns a potential nominee into an official nominee. And to determine that, they take the total number of ballots received for a particular category and divide it by the possible total possible nominees plus one. So an easy example is to take 600 potential ballots for the Best Actor category, divide that by six, All right, so hold five on. possible nominees plus one, thus making Jack, the magic Jack, number... Jack, time. They choose who the people are going to be. Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> Was I talking too long about yes, that? Yes. You're right. going crazy. All right. Nominees, they're voted on. Price Waterhouse, whatever. They choose. They figure out who's nominated. Right. That and that's that could that number can vary. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, how do they choose among the nominees? Um, it's well, it starts. It says the counting starts based on a voter's first choice selection until someone reaches the magic number so for example dicaprio gets uh, he reaches the magic number first for the revenant 
Okay. And so the ballots that named him as the first choice are then all set aside, and there are now four spots left in the Best Actor category. The actor with the fewest first-place votes is automatically knocked out, and those ballots are redistributed based on the voters' second-place choices. It kind of continues, and actors or different categories rack up redistributed so votes until all five spots are filled. So what? So okay. So then all the so that's how the nominees are chosen. We're still on that. Yeah, I mean, right. well, it also finishes with if a ballot runs out of selections, that ballot is voided and is no longer in play, which is why it's important for voters to list five different nominees. So in other words, I guess the point of all this I'm saying is the fact that. And it's 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 a little bit it's ballooned for best picture because that you can have up to ten, right? And that's why, you know, that's that's why, for example, like now, you know, you got like District Nine as a best picture nominee, or you got uh, War Horse or something like that. Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> yeah. Or that, 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 okay, that so one. how so how is the actual winner chosen? Well, that well that's after well that's a different process. I mean, they they have the nominees. Then Academy members vote on the five that they're given. Okay, and that's more like so. The that's, 6, that's where you just vote who nominated them. Uh, so the six thousand people who nominated them then vote again for who they think who should, should win. Right now, uh, I th- okay. But now, so, the, the, but before you go on, I'm gonna go over this again. Th- yeah, because uh, I, I feel like, I feel like six... I'm explaining. I feel like I'm explaining the rules to Academy voting the board game. Right. So there are 6,000-plus Academy members. They have yeah. to be people in the industry with yeah. certain re- requirements. They can choose from a list of movies that have run for a certain amount of time and have premiered in theaters and also been screened in L.A. Correct. The people, the Academy members, choose five nominees. Mm. Then all then all the results are sent to this agency who chooses the nominees based upon their own system of yeah. vote counting. Yeah. Now, and those are the nominees. Let me let me finish. Sure. And then once all those nominees are announced, the people who voted who nominated people then go vote for who they think should win. Yeah. Now here's a diff- Okay. Now that's now, that's the process One in a small nutshell. one small thing I wanted to mention though, and I don't know if I mentioned this when I was talking about the preamble. People in their fields vote on the particular categories, though. Okay. So, like, for example, like, um, Kate Winslet isn't going to vote on who did the best visual effects. All right, that makes If sense. she's in the Academy, for example. Now, deciding the winners, though, uh, the whole Academy gets to vote on each category, though. All right, that makes sense. Yeah. And so certain th- so certain specialists have uh, are able to vote for their specialty. Yeah, yeah, so that's why... You know, I mean, that makes sense because whenever it comes to a category like best sound design, yeah, I really have no, <laughs> I really have no idea on how I would judge that if yeah. I was an academy. Yeah, member. I mean, sometimes when I'm watching the nominees yeah. and someone and I hear the best sound, I sometimes think, are they choosing it based on the most sound? Yeah, because <laughs> sometimes when a movie wins like that, yeah, because like, best sound design is usually where a lot of the action films get their. In. That's where I think. I could be wrong, and maybe someone will correct me, but that's where I think one of the Transformers movies probably has Oscar nominations yeah. for sound, because you know Optimus Prime requires a lot of sound. Yeah. Well, I, I'd give I've now I'd I, give Peter Cullen's now I mentioned all these rules. Anything. Now I mentioned all these how this has been going on for so long because this week the Academy announced changes because because of all the pressure from people that you know this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. All these films that have come out this past year, uh, this Netflix movie called Beasts of No Nation, uh, Stray Out of Compton, The Hateful Eight, um, Creed. You have these movies with very talented actors and directors that are black, but they're not really getting uh, attention. And I think that the it's a very tricky situation, though, because part of the assumption might be that if you're like an older white person, even if you're not intending to be, you might have some kind of prejudice that you'll kind of pick possibly white people over black people. And that of course is now the problem that is, it might be stemming from this. So um, beginning later this year, and I'm reading from the Oscars website, I'll be fast as I can with this beginning this later this year, each new member's voting status will last 10 years and will be renewed if that new member has been active in motion pictures during that decade. In addition, members will receive lifetime voting rights 
after three 10-year terms, or if they have won or been nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, we will apply these same standards retroactively to current members. In other words, if a current member has not been active in the last 10 years, they can still qualify by meeting the other criteria. Those who do not qualify for active status will be moved to emeritus status. Emeritus members do not play, pay dues, but enjoy all the privileges of membership except voting. This will not affect voting for this year's Oscars. So... In other words, if so you what they're trying to do is they're trying to get get some greater turnover. Yeah, they want to root out, I guess, some of the old fogies. And but now you have a couple of people who have come out. Like I forget who, but there was some there was some act there was some actor who um um I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, I'm just quickly typing in here. Um, I mean, because to me, I don't see exactly what it's supposed, how this is supposed to help. I mean, theoretically, well, I getting, guess the idea get, is maybe... theoretically getting some new people in there will pro will bring in some new perspectives. Yeah. But it all seems, I mean, if if you have people who are active in film, I mean, that's three ten year terms, and then they get lifetime rights. Yeah. I mean, how is that supposed to help? I mean, well, I guess the idea is like, let's say if you were in a in a TV show in your 20s or 30s and you get Oscar status and now you're in your 60s or 70s and you're still getting to vote on movies for the Oscars. I don't know. But I guess now, like, I saw one or two articles from, like, some old TV child actors who are like, this is so unfair! <laughs> like, some maybe some kid from Lost in Space or something was like, upset. So I don't know. I, I, I feel I, mixed about it because... What happens if next year there are a couple of really great movies with African American actors and some and you, they get nominated? Is this all going to be forgotten? Are we going to say, "Oh wow, progress was that fast"? Because I think there is a problem with some of the, and I almost hate to keep using the word diversity because it sounds like a like an economic term or something. Yeah, it's but a, it sounds like a buzzword. Yeah, but if you do have like a super wide-ranging majority of people who are older, white, male, I guess, you know, I guess, is it like some other things in this country where you have, like, people who are in statuses of power that are reflecting that when the country is starting to move the more towards minorities becoming the majority? I don't know. It's a tough question to answer, and I, but I guess we'll see how this goes with this with the Academy's rule changes. I think a big problem, I mean, a lot of this though, there's also the root of it that, you know, you got to make the industry itself a little bit more equal so that the Oscars can reflect that. See, this is why we got to get in the, into the Academy. We could stir up some shit, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm so gonna... enough. I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about this? Before about the Oscars? Yeah. No. All right, I think we've talked about that. Too. I just thought it was interesting. I'm just to still bring amazed up. that Mad Max Fury Road got nominated, so I'm happy about that. Yeah, I I, I am too. That I was, was talking to my librarian yesterday, and I, I, because I got Mad Max out of the library, yeah. and and, we, and she was saying, "Yeah, this movie's great." And then I'm like, "I I I still can't believe that it got nominated." Yeah, a film that I saw got nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> That happens though sometimes. Yeah, but it doesn't happen as often for me. No, I you guess... go to you go to the theaters more often than I do. That's true. I, I I do remember that last year there were no nominees for Best Picture that you had seen. Right. And it's then, hard to get involved in the Oscars that way. Yeah, but but no, this time you have Mad Max, and then uh, uh, God, what else? What else is you need to see The Martian. Yeah, probably. You rent that from your library when you can. Because I'll be interested, to, especially because I might have mentioned this before, but I kind of think of it as a little bit of uh, Ridley Scott's redemption from Prometheus. That would be interesting. You know, instead of having this big, messy, philosophical space action sci-fi mess, you know, this is more like a grounded in sort of reality science fiction. I don't movie. I don't think reality is the problem. I just think script. A script? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this movie has a script. Well, talking well speaking of library rentals, I got a movie from the library recently. Okay. I kind of wanted to talk about this. Uh what when was the last time or have you seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show? I I actually I I saw this when I was 
pretty young, uh, maybe when I was like 13 or 14, and I didn't see it the way that you're supposed to see it. I, I mean, I know that the way that you're supposed to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show is like... In a crowd. In yeah, a at a midnight screening. Right. Uh, but, um, I, no, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it. No. Uh, I and he, Here's the thing about the film. I love the way... That Rocky Horror Picture Show opens. Oh yeah, with the the lips yeah. over the opening credits. It, it's such it's such a stroke of genius because it's just a pair of lips singing a song yeah. about making out in a movie theater, mm. which is, which is fantastic. It sets the mood perfectly for the film. Yeah, y- you definitely remember it too. Yeah. and then the movie happens and it's terrible. <laughs> I like it's the not. Music. I mean, I think that the the cult around it. I mean, that's looked at as sort of the granddaddy of, here's a movie that we recognize is pretty bad, but we're going to have fun with it anyway. Yeah, but I mean, its fame, its cult status comes from its badness. I think also people genuinely enjoy the songs. Yeah, the, the songs are good. And, you know, generally, some awesome. of them are, I, some of them I like more than others. Yeah, me too. But I remember them, though. That's the thing, though. I, I will say the movie is memorable. Like, I still remember Meatloaf's entrance into the movie, <laughs> which is kind of crazy, and... Uh, of all things, I remember that Creature of the Night song where Susan Sarandon is having sex and yeah. she keeps flashing between like Tim Curry and is the other guy Barry Bostwick? Barry Bostwick. Yeah. Um, so I will say there are things about there memorable. It's just a little campy for me. I know that but that's one... another thing. I am trying to figure out what the hell campy means. It's outlandish. It's exuberant. It's outrageous. Like, what do you mean campy? It's it kind of you know it when you see it, right? Well, but that's the thing. I'm not sure. Like there was, <laughs> there was another movie I saw this week, but I'm a cheerleader. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, I've not seen that. And that's that's a great movie. Hmm. I I, th- I I think it's genuinely great. Oh, I've never I've heard good things about it. Yeah, they mentioned it in this film is not yet rated. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Because, and it also has... A, because it's about le- lesbians, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it all, And it also has a, a performance by Dante Basco, who you who you will know as Prince Zuko from the Avatar series. <laughs> well, now that you say that, oh, oh. Once the, you see... The it, Prince Zuko. Once you hear him, you'll know exactly who he is. No, but, I'm, I'm sure I will. But then, and I was watching it, and, you know, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is pretty good comedy, and it's kind of... It's kind of dark in places. I like Natasha Leone. Yeah, she's she's great too. She has this great like she has these great pouty lips, so she reminds me of Judy Garland. Yeah. But and then like I was listening to the, people talk about it on on a podcast, and they were like, "Yeah, it's such a great campy film." And I'm like, "Wait a minute, it's campy? I didn't even realize it." <laughs> and I and it should be like, duh, obviously, but I can't define campiness. In words, it's like a, a brain blind spot for me. You're you're like the congressman who isn't quite sure what porn is, but maybe you know. No, it when I, you see I know it. what porn is. <laughs> <laughs> I I think well, I mean, people say that the original Batman TV show is campy, and okay. I'm, and I watch it and I I'm like okay, but then there are thi- but then it's like weird because. I recognize, like, in that show is a lot of humor that would go on to, like, influence later Nickelodeon shows, like mm-hmm. Spongebob and Fairly Odd Parents, And that seems normal to me, because it was it was in a cartoon that was genuinely funny. Mm. And I'm like, is this exuberant, you know or is I this thi- just supposed to be funny? You know what I think is an example of a campy movie? Is, uh, Lil, like, Lil Shop of Horrors. I haven't seen the Lil Shop of Horrors. Oh, you're missing out a little bit. Wait, the, the black and white one? No, 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 the, the remake. Okay, well that's different. Um, I don't know. It it can vary depending on what the movie's going for. Sometimes, like campy is a euphemism for gay dealing with yes, uh, certain. There gay is themes. something to do with gayness in campiness. A little bit. I, yeah. Rocky I mean, not, Horror not Picture Show always. is all about gayness. Oh yeah. So is but I'm but I'm a cheerleader. Uh, I don't know. It's a good. Uh, it, it can de- it sometimes then, like, has to, it's, it, it sometimes depends on tone like uh, i mean uh there's a western that uh i actually just kind of quickly looked up uh um uh, a list from you know campy stuff and there's a list of 25 movies one of them is this movie called uh Johnny Guitar which yeah, i really i it's one of my favorite westerns 
Uh, it's with Joan Crawford and Sterling Hayden. And that movie is often looked at as this big, gaudy, campy movie. And I think I can kind of see it because it's it's a movie made at a time where you know most westerns didn't have a woman as the lead and here it's like all about this woman who's running like this uh i forget if she's running a saloon or she's running like a hotel and she's kind of like big and in charge and the way that she's shot she looks like really big in the frame and sterling hayden is kind of more like the co-lead his jaw is clenched and i'm constantly looking like this I'm going to make sure I know how to do this thing correctly. Um, ah, I got shot in the throat. Ah, I got ah. shot in the throat. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good reference. Godfather. Um, I, I, it depends on. Yeah, actually, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is on this list, at number twelve. Yeah. Or, or, um, John Waters made movies. I guess you could say are also campy stuff like Pink Flamingos. Now I do have to admit I have not seen a John Waters movie. I've only seen a couple. I'm so that's one of my big deficiencies as a film goer is lack of that. Oh, um, Showgirls. Huh. That is very that that's basically been survived so many years because people find some kind of entertainment value. I, in but it. The, but even you though talk it's about terrible. all these different kinds of films, and I I really get the feeling that campiness is not an objective. It's it, there's nothing you can there's nothing concrete about it. Well, it depends on something what, who just, you are in the audience too. May, maybe, but it seems very subjective. I I think sometimes campiness is a way of kind of finding to, to play something over the top, even though you could find a way to play it more naturally. I mean, uh, um, I don't know. Like, uh, for some reason, like, I'm looking at this movie list right now online, and of all things, at number three on this list, All About Eve is listed as a campy movie. What? And, yeah, well, exactly. It's like, how do you see, like, yeah, it's it says the ultimate camp tale of us, usurpation. Not Who uses really? the word usurpation? Um, I use usurpation all the time. Yeah. Like how I'm going to usurp your position as podcast co-host. And I'll become what? dual co-host. <laughs> My usurpation just, shall become complete. This is really random, but you just reminded me of this uh, Muppet Show sketch where uh, Kermit the Frog is interviewing, like, this alien on a planet and he's this alien who uh, assimilates other people and they keep going back and forth kind of cutting back and forth they'll show kermit and then they'll show the alien and he now has green skin they cut back to kermit and they cut back into a wide and now he's dressed and looks just like kermit with fangs and they cut back again he looks just like kermit and they try to fight and they're both like hi oh kermit the frog here <laughs> So that's what your plan is, to assimilate me. I'm going to assimilate you thing-style. Uh, and, uh... All right. Anyway, yeah, but me... I mean, campiness has something to do with, like, being over the top and gayness and just silliness and badness. Yeah. I mean, but uh, I, I guess, like, all those things can make a big sort of cloud of camp, but I don't see any clear-cut boundaries. Hmm. All right. Well, you know what? Actually, this, I'm is a, this is a good time to mention that if you if you have a response to what Andrew was just talking about, yeah, tell me you can tell me what it, in your own words what campiness. If is. If you can give Andrew a good answer as to what campy is, um, uh, we will buy you an island. No, but we will read your statement online uh, on on the air. You can send us an email a whip, uh, to sorry wagesofcinema at gmail dot com. I almost said whiplash film. Jesus, my my company. Uh, we're also on Facebook. That's not my tempo. Thanks, J.K. Not, Simmons. Now you're rushing. Uh, and now I'm, you're dragging. Yeah. Throw chair. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So you, so if you want to respond to that, those are the ways to reach us. Uh, speaking of uh, movies that kind of either go for, it's interesting we're having this conversation because now you're reminding me of two movies that I watched and in, in, uh, recently. Oh, great. new movies. So. I caught up with uh, two August titles from last year, uh, The Fantastic Four oh, and no. uh, The Man from Uncle. Um, I watched these both the same day. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Ma The Man from Uncle was the better of the two. 
it was the better of the two, um, sort of by default, but it was not a great movie. Uh, okay. Now, I'd say first with the Fantastic Four, uh, I mean, I, I wanted to go into it with more of an open mind because I've kind of I've sometimes come to movies after I've heard some bad hype and been like, oh, this actually is not that bad. Like, you know, another Fox title that had that was uh alien three which i ended up actually kind of liking which okay. got mailed by the studio this did not have that this was um this was a mess uh but not really a mess the thing that was a problem for me is that overall the movie's bad it's pretty terrible um part of the problem it also has comes down to tone uh you have a movie that's really taking itself very seriously and yet there's a character in it named victor von doom yeah. And I'm sorry, but you can't do that. No. You can't have a moment where you look at a piece of paper and you show Victor Von Doom. That doesn't uh, fly uh, anymore. Unless you spell it D-U-M-E and have no, people joke that, about that's it. That's even all, worse. Have people joke about it all the time. No. Uh, and the funny thing is that and then like they they call he's called Doctor Doom almost in passing as a joke, like, no. oh what, you're you're Doctor Doom now. And uh, then, now what happens is most of the movie is pretty, the tone is pretty serious, and you see the Fantastic Four become who they are, you know, in a pretty gruesome way. It's like, again, a very dark movie, which is not the right tone for no. this. Then the last 15 minutes, you suddenly see where the studio took over and thought to themselves, all right, we need to try to make this a conventional superhero movie. We got to get this out of our, the director's hands. And it becomes bad in a completely different way. Wow. In a, like they have a big battle the fantastic four fight dr doom on like this other planet and it has dialogue like and i'm not kidding there is no victor there is only doom what? <laughs> <laughs> and dr doom looks like crap and it's oh just such a mess oh man whereas with man from uncle um i don't know how much time i have left but uh that one i mean here's the good thing about that you have henry cavill Right. Once again, being and I love Henry Cavill. Henry Cavill is a just a genuinely charming actor, and in this he has a role that he's you know aptly cast in. He's you know a, a super suave secret agent, uh, formerly like an art thief, and he's drafted by the CIA to uh, to do missions in during the Cold War. Uh, he's sort of paired up with this uh, Russian spy. Uh, you know, one of these. Oh, it, it was a hammer, right? Yeah, it was like it's interesting thing because because Henry Cavill's British and he does a really good American accent. Whereas oh, yeah. Army, whereas Army Hammer, at times it seemed a little odd with him doing a Russian accent. It, I don't know if he was trying too hard, but I could always tell it was an accent. Yeah. Um, there's some fun action in it. I, it's a little too long. I feel like, and part of the problem is that. Uh, it tries to balance between being a comedy and being a real action movie. And uh, we just had a year where I saw two movies. Um, this would have been a good movie to bring up during the spy discussion that we had. But after a year with uh, movies like Kingsman, The Secret Service, and uh, Mission Impossible 5, it just didn't fly as much as I'd wanted to. It's it's a style over substance type of movie, and when I say that, it's when you have so much going on with the camera, yeah. but there's not, like, the script, the characters aren't as developed as you might like. Uh, but like I said, if you want Henry Cavill ha quipping uh, right and left, um, it's a little bit like if a slight, it's a slightly more serious version of Archer in the 60s. <laughs> huh. Yeah, so it's a little uh, bit jokey. Think of all the wasted potential. Yeah, I I could see Henry Cavill like his face looks like Archer in the series. Man. So yeah, those are the two movies I watched. What were, what were a couple other things that you had uh, that you had going? I on watched lately? the original Django. Doesn't hold up. Uh, it's an okay movie. Yeah. Uh, it's not as great as I, you know, had heard. It I mean it has some visually striking moments. Right, and, and you know, I love I I love the uh, the uh, you know the aesthetic of this whole thing, this very muddy, uh, dirty town. Yeah, you know that that's a, a miserable place. Uh, but Django himself is not that strong. He doesn't really have a personality. He's more of just an attitude, and it has a lot in common with a lot of bad anime that I've seen. 
this thought came. <laughs> what to do you me. mean, the dialogue? No, not like the dialogue. Like there's just like there's in anime and in spaghetti westerns, there's this similar trope of the badass hero with the awesome weapon. Mm. And, you know, you can do that well, and you can do that poorly. Okay. They both do poorly the same way mm. in spaghetti westerns and anime. I never noticed that before. So it was actually a worthwhile experience. Yeah. I don't want to talk too much about Django, though. It's just, it's just not as good. As well, no, I there's not too much I can remember about it. I mean, I remember Franco Nero being, you know, a good lead, and I remember him dragging around that coffin. All right. And, uh, of course, the theme. Django. Yeah, that's that's an awesome. Uh, that's yeah, awesome I mean, it's so good that Tarantino used it again. Um, Probably to better effect. I, if you listen to the lyrics of the Django theme, it fits the story of Django Unchained. I think a lot a better than bit. it does the story of Django. Hmm. I'm trying to think back to some of the lines from that. Don't go um, too deeply into it. Wait until we wait until uh, we break, and you'll see what I mean. Yeah. Um okay. So uh, what what was what was there in, what, how about you, what was something else you watched? Oh, I I can't think of much else. I mean, I I've I've watched Oh, 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 oh. Oh, you 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 look like you're you're I finally did it. I watched The Tale of Princess Kaguya. Good. After a year of owning it, I watched it. If I had a little <laughs> thing, I'd go Yes. After all this time. Okay, so what do you think? It's really good. Yeah, it's uniquely animated, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I But I figured out also it still has the same problem I have with all of Studio Ghibli films. The English dub is not done as well as it should be. And I think uh... I figured out why. Because all because whenever someone dubs Studio Ghibli film, they choose well-known actors to draw attention to the film. Okay, sometimes I, that happens. Uh, what is it, Howl's Moving Castle? That had Christian Bale in it? I didn't notice that the first time then, I watched it, but then, when I was watching it on TV, I was like, oh, that's Christian Bale. Right, and then Princess Mononoke has uh, Kate Winslet, I think. And, you know, no, I, no, Claire Danes. Claire Danes, I'm sorry. Yeah, they're, uh, I noticed Billy Bob Thornton in that movie, Yeah, and that and was then, odd. And I don't know. He, he wasn't bad in it, but no. and this and, and uh, Princess Kaguya has Chloe Grace Moretz, I, I think. Uh, see, I I had a different experience because when I saw it, it was uh, the Japanese dub. Well, so. that was that was probably a better way to go. You but should try I, that maybe a little bit more. Yeah, you know, I, like if the, you look at it as like a foreign film as opposed to yeah. the anime that you usually watch on TV, where you can get anybody to do a voice, right? Oh, but there, there, there is a professional voice actress who does a voice in Princess Kaguya. Remember that little handmaiden that Kaguya has who helps her out? Yeah. And you know she's this short little thing. She's uh-huh. voiced by Hinden Walsh, who's who was Starfire in Teen Titans and Princess Bubblegum in Adventure Time. She's done a ton of stuff. Okay. And she does a great job. She's great in that. Uh-huh. And she's but she's a professional voice actress. Yeah. She's but then you have people like James Caan and Mary Steenburgen and. Uh, Dean Kane of all people, <laughs> and you know they're not terrible, but they're yeah. not voice actors. No, I. There are people who know how to act solely through their voice and know how to give a performance through animation. You know who gave a surprisingly good voice job uh, when I watched The Wind Rises? I saw that in the English dub, and Werner Herzog had a small part. Oh, in Werner that. Herzog does so much great voice stuff now. Oh, does he? Well. He Does did, he do a lot of stuff? Because I've I don't only know, seen but him I've in seen, two things. I've seen two things, too. I've seen him do Werner Herzog in... The Boondocks? Yeah, the Boondocks. Yeah. And then I saw... And then he did the voice of this... This character is only... He's only in, like, ten minutes of the movie. But he... He makes an impression. There's another... T- Have you seen Rick and Morty? I need to watch He that does show. a... I'm going to show you this clip. Okay. All right. Enough of that. Princess Kaguya it is a really great film. I'm okay. going to watch it in the Japanese great. audio because I think that's the only way I'm ever going to truly 100% enjoy there a Studio go. Ghibli film. All right. Um, all right. That's enough about me. All right. I I'd, like to, talk about... I'd like to talk about now. Um, let's go back to Satanists. Oh, Satanists. Right. Satan. All right. In the past, like, 48 hours or so, or am I going to say 48 hours? I'd say you the past Satan. few days. Well, yeah. I met Satan in the form Expect of... Expect our podcast to start taking off. Pleased to meet you. Oh, guess my name. No. He's um, a monkey, man. 
It's two different Stone songs. Damn it. Were you rushing or were you dragging on that? <laughs> All right. Ah. I watched three documentaries. It's kind of a, a trilogy that I've been meaning to see for years. Ooh. Uh, it's uh, called uh, the Paradise Lost series. Now, are are you familiar at all with these uh, the cases involving uh, the West Memphis Three? Does that sound familiar? It does not. Okay. Unfortunately, this it was also called the the Robin Hood uh, murders, um, Robin Hood Woods murders. Um, See, that would have been an awesome title Robin Hood for a Hills. Movie. Oh no no oh Paradise Lost: The Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills. There, that's, that's a title. That, that's the first movie. Now, what happened with this was. Uh, in 1993, uh, these three children, um, they were Boy Scouts, they uh, were found uh, murdered. Uh, their, their bodies were found in this uh, ravine uh, in, the, in the woods. And uh, the cops uh, arrested and charged these three teenagers. Hmm. And uh, the main impetus was that these these three were occultists. They were Satanists. Wait, what, what time? What, what year was this? 1993. Okay. And going into 1994... And there was this big fervor about how one of the one of the people who was arrested, uh, this guy uh, Eccles, Damien Eccles, uh, dressed in black and had black hair, and so he must have been the ringleader and been involved <laughs> in this. Um, but what you find out through these three movies, uh, basically, like this isn't a spoiler, this is just this history. Right. Uh, they they were charged and they were convicted of murder, and two of the two of the two of the teenagers were sentenced to life one of them the, the leader was sentenced to death but through the appeals process they weren't killed right away right so these movies track over the course of uh like 17 18 years what happened in for these people uh you know the first movie is about the initial trial and the fact that the cops botched a lot of evidence and uh, and also there was, we talked about the, the idea of a forced confession or a misused right. confession that happened with one of the teenagers who had an IQ of like 70, who didn't, you know, who was easily led along through interrogation and told to say things that were not true. And then the second movie is about how, um, you know, some of the doubts surrounding one of the kids stepfathers, who's a real character. Oh. I'll say this guy named Mark Byers, who, really plays up to the camera in a way that's a little bit odd uh, and unnerving, to say the least. Real redneck kind of guy. God, I only have ten seconds for the third movie. Uh, the third movie's the best one because that's where more things come to light. And, uh, yeah. God. I, if I could just say a couple more words yeah, about this movie. I mean, this whole series is... Uh, I, I watched this in part because I'd been watching a Netflix series in the past couple weeks called Making a Murderer. Right. And that's also about one. that's also about um, uh, two people who were who have been put in jail and are still there over, you know, evidence that, you know, when a jury convicts people, it's supposed to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And the idea in that case and also in these Robin Hood Hills murders is that there is reasonable doubt. <laughs> And the filmmakers kind of show that, like, in the first movie, they show it just by putting a camera in the courtroom and showing, huh, there's a lot of things that are fishy here, and these teenagers don't look like killers. Like, one of them looks like a real young kid. And, and of course, the point is that also Satanism, you know, there's a lot of easy assumptions to make when, you know, you're dealing in the early 90s in a place like uh, West Memphis, Arkansas. Yeah. And... Just fascinating stories how, you know, they go into, uh, you know, what what is and isn't bullshit about uh, occultists and Satanists. Yeah. And how it's very easy to make assumptions about somebody just by how they dress and how they talk. And, uh, and yeah, the third... Yeah, it's, it's really kind of... It's really one of the twisted things about uh, trials that you can... That people tend to make assumptions about people... Uh, you know, based upon those things. I mean, I was reading a book recently about that, that touched on false accusations of child molestation and rape. And when you're a person who is gay or you're shown to have different views on sex, yeah, that goes against you in a court and you have to go out of your way to show that you are normal to a jury. Sure. It's uh, because people have assumptions about, you know, 
a gay person is more they assume is more likely to molest children which is awful yeah. but it's something but it's a belief that people still hold unfortunately yeah but yeah that's it's really sobering well it's also the kind of thing that especially in one of these small towns like west memphis you know that you have people who you know and especially when three children are murdered yeah. you know passions are really high and you want to see people blamed immediately and when you have you know young people at that time who Oh, you listen to Metallica and all this death metal music. Metallica? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, Metallica scores uh, the first two movies, which is kind of fun. Oh, cool job, Metallica. Yeah. Go, good for you, Metallica. Um, But I, I highly recommend these movies. You can actually watch all three on Amazon Prime, which is how I watched it. Oh, and there's great. actually And there's actually a fourth documentary, which is separate from what these filmmakers did. Uh, that's just called West of Memphis, and it's actually produced by Peter Jackson. And huh. the thing is, this case got a lot of attention because I think at the time it was shown on HBO, the first part. Then by the second part, it was so big that the filmmakers actually weren't allowed in the courtroom, which slightly hampers the movie a little bit, but it's made up for by this other character, Mark Byers, who they worked, like... They worked around it pretty well. For me, they did. But And then the third movie is set that's that was like in 2010 2011 when they were finally let go they were finally freed i should have mentioned that that's the good news not a spoiler because it's history not yeah not a spoiler because you can easily google it and find out how they got out through an alfred plea and whatever that is that's a long story so the point is go see these movies the alfred plea which is the butler did it (laughs) (laughs) yeah I didn't mean to do it, Master Wayne, but I had to take out the Joker. He, he was going to bomb my manor. And... <laughs> right, that was that is not terrible. Okay, right. thank you. Um, I have a couple more things to talk about, though, before we break. Um, All right. I saw two bad horror movies. Good. Oh, you saw The Boy. I saw The Boy. Oh, let's talk about The Boy. All right, can I... It's hard to talk about that much without getting into spoilers, so can I just put a little spoiler thing All right. for my for our listeners? Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about The Boy. I'm not... I don't care about it being spoiled, but I know some of you do. <clears throat> skip ahead. We'll tell you the part in the show description where you can skip ahead to, and we and you can skip ahead to that so you don't have to hear spoilers about The Boy. But last warning, spoilers. All right, ready? Jack. Alright, so this movie uh, has probably the dumbest plot twist that I have ever seen in a theatrical released motion picture. The boy is actually a girl. No. Alright, so do you know the premise for the movie? Yeah, you know, I, I've seen the trailer. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, if you see the trailer, it's almost kind of funny at first, the fact like this woman's brought in and yeah, but but I, I uh, it's it seemed to me it's a creepy what, premise. Do you know what the log? I mean, the log line and like what it starts out as. It's not that bad because it's because it, it's set in England, and you know you have like somebody who's getting you know has to take care of a child. It's the innocence meets child's play, huh. or at least that's what I thought it was. That that's what and for a while it's actually it's not badly acted. It's not shot terribly. And and I was kind of with it for a while. Like there were some flaws in the storytelling here and there. Like, but you know, nothing you couldn't get over. Yeah, I could. I'll, I'll overlook this. I'll look over that. You know, I'll try to buy into. Okay, I guess this doll must be possessed, or there's some kind of ghostly spirit, and that's what's going on here. There's a little bit of mystery. We'll have to figure out what it is. Um, but at a certain point, like this, so this like the the doll's head gets uh, destroyed. And at this moment is when the movie, as I post on Facebook, it doesn't jump off of a cliff. It jumps off of the Empire State Building. <laughs> um, it. So what happens is, like, you know, they keep on arguing about, like, no, this doll is not real. This doll is doing weird things. It's getting up and walking around. It's doing things and we're not looking at it. It's doing blah, blah, blah. The doll's head, you know, is crashed and broken up. The house is starting to rumble. And all of a sudden, a guy jumps out from the walls, and it turns out it's the boy grown up as a man, and he's been alive all along, living in the walls. What? Because what happened is, in the story, the boy, like, he was an actual boy raised by his parents, and you're led to think that, like, oh, he died in a fire, and, you know, he also, like, killed this girl. But no, the parents... 
like faked his death, installed him like in a little space, like with his own room in between the walls where he lived for like 25 years. And when he appears, he has the strength of Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers. And he has like a doll mask over his face, which has a scruffy beard. What? <laughs> yes. Yes! This movie! Oh my god! Oh my god! It... That is... <laughs> You're right. That is the stupidest <laughs> twist. Yeah, I was sitting there in disbelief. That's like... the stupidest twist since there was no monster. <laughs> in monster a go go <laughs> I don't even remember that from that movie. Trust me, you're not missing anything. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just... Oh, movie... First of all, that's extremely disappointing. Yeah, I'm the, sorry the, to break this The to story you. about the living doll apparently wasn't good enough. No, so instead, the, through, whole, the whole movie is just, like... Instead of... Like, you're misdirected. Instead of thinking, like, from the start, oh, this guy hidden in the walls is... Every time, like, this woman is not in the room, the guy comes out and moves the doll around and and does no. things, like, leaves her sandwiches and, <laughs> oh, God. And, like, there's a list of rules that you have to follow with the boy. I was like, but then why bother with the doll? I don't know. I don't know. At first, you're, I you thought... Just, he's dead. Why do you have to pretend that... <laughs> I was sitting in the theater and I was like having my hands up over and over again. And I was like, I want to throw rocks at the screen right now because now what's become kind of an interesting, chilling, eerie little doll movie that's well made becomes a serial killer movie in the space of 10 seconds. And it never gets back. And you're just, I was like distracted by the fact that this guy is like, he has like the doll face, like with a beard. It's like as if, okay, am I am I supposed to be to believe that he's never shaved before? But he doesn't have that big a beard. But he's been living in the walls. Exactly. Why does he have to live in the walls? <laughs> why couldn't Why like, couldn't they have sent him to another country? Why didn't Why didn't the Why didn't the family just move out of the country? Like this family lives in like an. They estate. obviously burned down their house. They built, burned down the house and rebuilt it so that when, like, they hire new nannies to take care of the Brom doll, his name's Brom right. in the movie, it's like, well, no wonder other nannies have left the job. and Because the movie was stupid. They knew what they, they, knew what they were getting into. And, like, there's also a thing where the parents, they... Uh, this is another spoiler, but we're on that already. We're already... The, the, the parents kill themselves, but before they do that, they send Brahm a letter saying, she's all yours now. What? And the thing is, they mail it to the house, and she never checks her mail for some reason, and they that's how it's not alerted to... Oh my god. Yeah, Corey, we're talking about the boy. My wife is in the room, and... Yeah, it is one of the most infuriating experiences I've ever had watching a movie. Like, ever. Like, this... I I, I apologize, M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm so sorry. The signs. It's, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was the boy. Yeah. Oh, boy. And then I also saw this movie called The Forest, which was just forgettable bad. Like, I will give the boy this. You should see it, and I know I've gone th and said all these spoilers now, but watch it anyway. Yeah, I think we're out of spoiler territory, so... Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah, so welcome back. Uh, <laughs> I'll make sure to mark that, yeah, this is uh, um, around where uh, <laughs> spoilers end. Um, yeah, but go see the boy, and let me know what you think if you do see it. I'm very curious. All right. The forest, <clears throat> forgettable. Forgettable. Oh, that's the one with the in Japan, right? Yes, it's it's set in the the suicide woods, yeah, which that, is a great concept. That is a great concept, but I knew from the trailer that this wasn't. Gonna they don't be, do anything. Gonna, it wasn't going to be great. It's just the eh. less. I've almost forgotten a lot of that movie. That also has a little bit of a twist. <laughs> the movie but was so forgettable, you forgot what a forest is. 
I forgot the, the forest for the trees. Is that the thing with the water? No, the wood water. No, no, I was thinking of an ocean. Never mind. No. All right, all right, and last things to just mention really briefly. Um, uh, I watched a couple more documentaries. I, I rewatched Going Clear, which was this movie about right, Scientology. Scientology. And yeah, just as creepy as, as the first time I watched it. L. Ron Hubbard uh, is somebody who, if they ever make a bi- biopic about him, it will be. I don't think it can ever be made because his life is too unbelievable to be believed. I guess the, the, the we already have the master, so it's not needed. Close enough. Oh, I want to mention a short film, which I will I will have to show you very soon. Um, <clears throat> are you familiar all with Don Hertzfeld? Yeah. Yeah, you've seen Rejected. Right. Uh, the Third Dimension, some of those types of things. He has a new short out called uh, World of Tomorrow. It's actually up, I think... Uh, for an Oscar nomination, is best animated short. Great, and it is—it's uh, a unique piece of art. It's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's a great—it's—it's it's him being—it's—he's kind of increased in sophistication in some ways, even he's, though his he's drawings are still very. He's increased crude. in sophistication since my anus is bleeding. Yeah, <laughs> he's still the same genius who created that, and he is a genius. Right. My anus is bleeding is one of those moments where I realized. Oh, this is what art is. <laughs> but uh, but this movie is brilliant on like a whole other level. This is about... All I could say in, in brief is that a little girl meets her future self and is taken on a journey to see what the future oh, will look like. Oh, I love things like that. You will really love there, this. The, you know, the Hark of Vagrant webcomic? Yeah, yeah, I remember those. There's a series of comics where the artist draws herself meeting her younger self mm. and they're, they're and they're just kind of really poignant and silly yeah and i just love them yeah those are great kate beaton she's she 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 does great work with that yeah but you know that's uh yeah i'm interested to see this now yeah no and um oh and one last thing i um i mean i could talk about some other movies i saw like uh it was a documentary what happened with simone about nina simone on netflix that's worth Meh. checking out uh can't f- be nominated for an Oscar. There's don't a care. yeah. There's a film noir. It is up for an Oscar. Can't don't whatever. Forget it. it's not for you. <laughs> I watched a film noir with the most generic title ever called Caught. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're you're caught up in its grip, people. Um, the only the notable thing about that is that uh, it's James Mason and uh, not Kim Novak, but the other woman from Vertigo. She's right. the lead in it, Barbara Bel Geddes or whatever. And it's like a Howard Hughes type movie. Cool. Um, and, uh, and lastly, though, um, right before you came over, I watched a movie called The Iron Lady. Right, which, Margaret Thatcher. <clears throat> yeah, it's basically me catching up on Oscar bait movies that I haven't seen. Yeah. Um. Eh. It's a Thatcher biopic. It's well, it's a very, it's a, kind of a jumbled mess in some ways because. You know what I love about The Iron Lady. Well, do you saw the movie? No, but, was, but about the actual Iron Lady. No, I, what I love about the Iron Lady is during the year, that Oscar year, it was when Daniel Day Lewis won for Lincoln. No, no, that was the next year. Are you sure? Uh, Lincoln was 2012. Iron Lady was 2011. But when Daniel Day Lewis got the Oscar, oh, Meryl Streep presented it to him. Okay. And then, <laughs> well, it would have been likely then, because she won for the Iron Lady, and often the winner from the previous year gives it to the win- to the nom- the the category for the opposite gender. Okay, but then he made this joke of, oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, well, she was probably uh, up for Best Actress. Well, how about you let me tell the joke? Sorry about that. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> All right, didn't mean to piss you off. <laughs> Never mind. We'll, we'll, we'll put the YouTube link because I can't do it as well as Daniel Day Lewis anyway. So, he makes a joke. Yes, he makes a pretty good joke too. He was, and that's why that year was awesome. I think that was also the year that Seth MacFarlane hosted the, uh, the Oscars, and that and that was yeah. He saw your movie because he made so many yeah, and he made so many jokes about Lincoln too, which were oh yeah 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 right. The only Oscars I've ever watched where I genuinely laughed, not just out of pity. <laughs> all right but enough of that all right so we with those are some movies we've watched recently when we come back we are returning uh uh for our second segment and andrew's first dive into the cinema immersion tank yep 
Yeah, let's see how that goes. So stay tuned for that. Django! Django, have you always 